our missions portion of our teams. And um, we've been talking about something for a long time, and that is to give a missions update, our missions moment, if you will. And so we decided that once a month, uh, Craig would come and give us an update on a missionary. Now, we're, there are a lot of missionaries that we support, and so he's just going to talk about one each time. And uh, we decided we would do this in lieu of putting out a lot of information in the hallway on the bulletin board and that kind of thing that most of the time people miss. And we often have people say, well, I don't know who our missionaries are and who we're supporting. So listen carefully as Brother Craig gives us a quick update on uh, a mission of his choosing for today. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor. Um, this is on Compassion and Hope. And, and what, before I, I give that update, um, what I will say is that since... We do, I do get letters uh, from a lot of missionaries and then other groups that would seek our support. So I will uh, pass those along in emails as, as for the rest of the month so that we have some ideas. With Compassionate Hope, um, Dr. L. Hansen's uh, mission has been part of our, our group. Compassion Hope is a global charity organization providing hope and a future to victims and potential victims of human trafficking and religious persecution in Southeast Asia. They believe that these victims are what the scriptures refer to as the least of these among you. As Matthew 25:40 says, And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did to one of these, the least of my brothers, you did it unto me. And our church, as pastor said, and I've said, this is one of the ones that we, we do every year. Um, I, in, in my uh, first letter that I'll be sending this afternoon, um, I'll include the address if anyone feels led to give more than what the church is corporately um, giving. But we received uh, their January field, January, uh, field update with the 2019 accomplishments. 800-plus children in 43 homes of hope across Thailand, Laos, and the Philippines. Now, this means that they rescue children from uh, human trafficking and moved them to homes where they had uh, people to take care of them. It's, it's, it's a like a foster care, but it's for people that are desperate. They're taking care of those kids that are desperate. They baptized over 300-plus children who publicly proclaimed their faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. They opened high schools in Pansang, Thailand, welcoming the first ninth grade class, and they will increase those grades in the next three years. They've opened five new homes of hope, and they opened a multipurpose building in the Philippines. They have funding committed for 2020 for this year for another multi-purpose building, which will serve as a church, cafeteria, study hall, and training centers for Lao pastors. And they've created an online store so people can purchase school supplies. This is interesting. Chicken, cows, and other items to increase the quality of care in these homes of hope. Do you hear that? They need chicken and cows I mean they don't have this and again there's a uh, there's a compassionhope.org 
That's on our, our church website, their, their main web page, and then there's a gift catalog. I'll, I'll send that again in the email. For 2020, their highest priority is daily care of children in de- homes of hope. And their greatest needs is to secure more Homes of Hope sponsors. They will be investing in training their local leaders and work to ensure consistently high levels of care in their homes. They plan to build four additional Homes of Hope, two in the Philippines and one in Thailand and Laos. And they plan to break ground in in their new school in, in one of those communities. Um, before I give it back to Pastor, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are a church that that loves to show our outreach by giving. And it is wonderful to hear what you are doing overseas. And we know perfectly well, Lord, that you've called us to be here in Charlottesville, in this community, to be a, to be missionaries with whatever you give us as gifts. So helped us to use it, whether here in Charlottesville and the surrounding area, or as we think about what we will we will do to serve you and help those that are overseas. Uh, be with the children affected by human trafficking and, and anyone that's in, affected by that, whether in in South Far East or or in Africa or or even in South America and, and close by. We know it happens all over, and we we pray against that sin. We carefully give you the praise and the glory and be with the pastor who gives the message. In Jesus' name, amen. It's good information, isn't it? I, I couldn't help but think as he was reading that, that, you know, when we're all in heaven one day, I really believe that the Lord is going to allow, I mean, we're going to be focusing on Jesus, of course, but I really think we're going to meet a lot of people that we were unaware of, except for through things like this, where you gave of your money to help people buy a cow, to buy a chicken. It's amazing, isn't it? We're so blessed in this nation. How many times have we talked about that over the years? And what a joy it is to be a part of a ministry that works like this. And so we'll hear much more as the months go by. So that's a great blessing. Thank you, Craig, for that. All right. Well, Craig has already prayed for us, so let's jump into our series here. We're working through the Sermon on the Mount, Foundational Truths, which is what Jesus is giving to the people there, and this is where we've been for quite a few weeks now. Last time, we started a new section, if you will, of the sermon. It really is all a continuation, but it's kind of a new section for us, where the Lord is promoting the sacredness of Scripture, or the supremacy of Scripture. And that's really our our whole theme throughout this little mini points, mini area, if you will. Now, last time as we looked at the supremacy of Scripture, I gave you a lot of information. You're probably still reeling from that if you didn't already block it out by now so that you don't remember and have bad dreams about too much information. So just to help you, I'm going to give you all that over again, okay? So I'm just going to completely repeat last week's message, and everything will be awesome. But I do really want to go through a couple of these because I think it's, it's so foundational for us. So if we could see some of those first slides. You'll remember now, this is where we've been. We've been talking about the character of a believer, and that was from the Beatitudes. Then the commissioning of a believer, which is what Jesus said, we are to be salt and light. If you're going to have this internal heart, 
Then there needs to come action from it. And that's what Jesus said next in his message. But then we said last week that he's now almost in a way going backwards just a little bit in that the scripture is what is the core of every believer. And that's what this little subsection is all about. Jesus is focusing our attention again, and we'll see this again today, on what it means to be a true believer. Can we go on to the next one there, Lynn? I told you about this, that this was Israel's view of God's law. They certainly understood that there were the Ten Commandments that were given to Moses. Later, the first five books of the Bible, known as the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Okay, um, The scriptures, known as the Old Testament, that would be comprising all of the prophets. Okay, So you read about the prophets, this would be what was known as the law and the prophets right there. Now, last time we talked about how the Pharisees then and the scribes and even the Sadducees began to create traditions because they didn't know how to fulfill the laws. There were things in there that just didn't make sense, and I'm saying that my way, so that's how my mind understands it. So they would want to create certain schools of thinking that would help people to fulfill what they believed the law was really teaching. Unfortunately, when man does that, he creates things that God never intended to be created. And he put the people, the Pharisees then, the leaders would put people under great bondage over time. But that became known as the traditions. Can we go to the next one real quickly? And then we saw last time, this is how it really began to play out. Man had his own standards, which were, yes, the Ten Commandments, yes, the first five books. Here came the oral law that Jesus talks about here, which became then the Mishnah, which was a summary of the law. And then there was the Talmud that was produced. It was a commentary on the Mishnah. Okay, you kind of wonder, where in the world is this going to end? Well, that's at least where the Jewish faith has been all of these years. Now, God's standards for man has always been founded upon reverence and respect. And then, of course, these other things, the Ten Commandments and the Pentateuch. I think there's one more slide for us to look at. Yeah, this is what the law was broken into, and that was the law of God was broken into three parts. There was the ceremonial law, which was really for Israel only, and that prescribed the acceptable form of worship that was given to Moses. And this is what we read throughout the Old Testament, in the early days especially, in the Pentateuch. There was the moral law that's really for all men. It was based on the Ten Commandments, and it's the law that we still adhere to except for things like honoring the Sabbath. And we talked about that last time, that the Sabbath is no longer a prescribed thing for man because every day is Sabbath to the Lord now, right? Amen? Every day, because of what the Scriptures teach us about the coming of Christ, He is now our Sabbath rest. And so we find our rest in Him. And then the judicial law was the third part of this that was for Israel as well, for the functioning as a nation. Okay, now that's a real Reader's Digest version there, if you will, of what we talked about last time. Now, Jesus is going to continue. Let's go to verse 18 now. I want to back up and read verse 17 too, just for the context. But we want to focus our efforts on verse 18 for this morning. So now after Jesus finishes all that, he begins this section on the scriptures and he says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to do that. I came to fulfill it. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now again, I read that last time, but I want to make sure that that's clear in our minds for this morning. So now let's just think for just a minute and go way back 
and try to understand a little bit more clearly what Jesus is talking about here. You and I know that since Adam and Eve, way back then, disobeyed God in the garden, Satan has been working overtime to discredit God's word in every way that he possibly can do that, promoting everything from God as false, or at least trying to rearrange people's thinking about who God is and what he says. In fact, even while he was tempting Eve, you remember what he said to her? It's one of my favorite lines in all of Scripture because it's so foundational for everything Satan does. Did God really say? You see what he's talking about? He's immediately focusing back to the words of God. He attacks God by his words and in his words. And Jesus now is coming along saying, here is how critical his words really are. Okay, now that began, all that temptation by Satan began the world questioning everything about God. And there's lots of illustrations about that throughout the the course of history. The reason that all of this has been happening is because sin has caused man now to elevate himself or herself to God's status themselves. And we've talked about this numerous times over the years. In other words, sin creates in man the desire to worship himself. And this is why I believe the Lord said, if you really want to follow me, then love people as much as you love yourself. That's the great challenge, isn't it? Because that's what sin does to us. We've seen it with Adam and Eve when Adam questions even God about this woman that you gave me. Right? Right after the fall, the Lord questions Adam and he says, it's the woman. It had been nice if he'd have stopped right there, but he didn't do that. He blamed God. It's the woman that you gave me. Beginning to question already God and the problem as if God was the problem. Cain kills his brother Abel. Wicked people come during the time of Noah. And then we have the issues that Moses deals with. And if you want some interesting reading and you've never done it before, I know some people will say, ah, I just can't get through the Old Testament. And I understand that it's challenging. Here's a little commercial. Men, come to our Bible study, and we'll explain it all perfectly to you. (coughs) We know that's not true. We're fleshing it out ourselves. But um, Moses dealt with some pretty rebellious folks who thought they had things all figured out. And it didn't end up well for them. David dealt with Israel throughout the years of his kingdom. And then, of course, the prophets were given by God to call the people back. Look, you've gone wayward. You've gone away. You've run away from the Lord. Now come back, come back, come back. God is the God of almighty uh, heaven and earth. He's the sustainer of humanity. Listen to him. Listen to him. You see, the focus is constantly on the word of the Lord. Listen to what God is saying. But as you guessed it, man's heart is way too hard. He wants his own way. He'll say he hears. He'll say he pays attention. But unfortunately, his actions prove far different and differently, and he'll reject God. And we see that so much in our day to day. I thought it was always, it's always interesting to me how something crosses my path Uh, that gives illustration to what we're working through the scriptures on. And I got a letter from a guy today calling Christians really to be the salt and light of the earth. I thought that was very timely. And here's what he says. Look at Virginia. Families collapsing, abortions, unwanted babies allowed to die after birth, opioid and drug abuse, marriage options, gender uncertainty, pornography, etc., 
cover the landscape. Is the Bible irrelevant or has our voice from the pulpit become silent? State and federal laws are adversely affecting families, individuals, and businesses, as well as our church's religious liberties. Bills being passed on a state and national level put females at risk, violate religious conscience, ignore parental rights, and teach sexual perversion to our children, all the while claiming to be the tolerant of everything but those who believe in God's moral limitations. Very interesting and very truthful statements. And uh, if you're following the news right now and you're seeing some of the legislation that's coming across uh, our government, it's just absolutely amazing, some of the things that are being uh, promoted. One of the latest ones, I think Linda sent it to me yesterday, last night, and uh, some of the newest laws that are coming about will really, and we've talked about this over the years, but the, the hindrances to the Word of God. And again, here's the attack. It's always to shut down the Word of God, to keep churches from... Uh, allowing the gay community to be a part of anything within the church or any kind of uh, separateness from anything in life, even to the point of heavy, heavy, heavy penalties. We're talking about up to $50,000 to $100,000 against churches and even personal liabilities for pastors. And they are just really pulling all the stops out. And this is legislation that's being uh, entered into into the, even the state of Virginia. So in spite, though, of man's rebellion, God came to the earth to give himself. And God knew that he needed to do this. And this is the gospel. He came because he knew man would have no chance to hear him or to see him or to know him if he didn't come. And we're so thankful for that, aren't we? That the Lord has provided himself to be the example for everything that is righteous. Remember, he came to do miracles. He came to show us things that no man could really even comprehend. It's amazing what the Lord has done to make himself known. But still, people reject him. Isn't it amazing that people can be given visible proof? You think about the people that saw Jesus in his lifetime and the miracles that he actually and phys- physically, literally performed, and yet they still rejected him. Just giving an, an amazing example of the hardness of the heart. People in their sin today will pick and choose what they want to hear from God. That's a big part of the problem. That is probably the part, that is the problem, is the sinful heart wants to just choose what is of God and what is not of God, questioning everything he says. But again, beloved, the truth is God is real. God has said what he wants us to know. He did come. He did give his life for us. He has given to us his truth and wrote it down for us. We've joked about that with our relationships, haven't we? Hey, I'll just write it down so you don't forget it next time. Well, a lot of truth to that. When God left us, he left us with his written word so that we will have that as the source for our life. This is what we were just showing on the screen and talking about last time. He has provided the truthfulness of this life through his own life, but then left us written record. Now, this section in Matthew's gospel is really one of the major highlights of God's word because in this section, Jesus is going to give to us the foundational reasons why we must hold to the word of God. So if you question and have ever questioned, boy, I'm not sure about God's word. I'm not sure about the Bible. How do I know? What are some things that are going to help me biblically to know and be founded that this truly is God's word and it wasn't just made up by a bunch of people. And that's commonly the argument. A man wrote that. 
It was written over so many times, and there's so many contradictions in this. How do I know that this is really foundational to me and to what God has truly said? Well, this section really loudly and unashamedly proclaims from the Lord himself, while he was here on the earth, in this very message, no greater proof than that this is the word of the Lord. So let's back up just for a second now and get back to our historical setting and just remember what's going on here and catch up some of you who haven't heard some of this. You remember by now Jesus hadn't been on the scene very long. He had been basically a recluse, for all we know, written in the biblical record for about 30 years now. But now he's in front of the crowd. People are flocking to him. They're seeing who he is, at least questioning greatly who he is, and that's really the the source of all of this sermon, to identify for the people who he really is. And the question that was so much on their mind was, are you really from God? Because you sure do act and talk a lot different from the people that we've grown up with, those leaders that have led us. And so they looked at Jesus and they saw a man who was very kind, very humble, and that was not the religious leaders. The religious leaders were proud and anything but kind as a general rule, not all of them, but as a general rule. Jesus was full of grace and and great mercy, seeing people and, and meeting their needs, healing people, both physically and giving spiritual enlightenment to them. And the thing that they really couldn't understand was how could he just break all the traditions that we've begun to understand and and be taught. And from our leaders who have promoted themselves as the spiritually elite people. How do we understand who he is? Because Jesus focused on the forgotten people. And you remember the passage in the text of Scripture that talks about how the Pharisee saw the poor beggar there on his face beating his breast and crying out to the Lord. And he says, boy, I'm glad I'm not like that. Who wants to be that kind of person? Well, that was the mentality that was going through the minds of the people as they were beginning to question who this Jesus really is. And when they saw him, they began to realize that there was something very different about him because he seems to genuinely love the people. And because he was so different, the people wanted to know, are you really truly from God? Is that who you are? And listen to the, if you just listen carefully to all the religions out there in the world today, they'll try to create Jesus as being a man who's just a good man, who's, yes, a prophet, yes, a teacher. And the question is, is he really truly from God? They saw what he could do. They heard what he said. How in the world he could be from God and be so different from the leaders they known? They wanted to know, would he uphold what they believed to be the sacred scriptures. Again, because it wasn't that they didn't believe the foundation of the scriptures, as I was just showing you, but it was that they had gotten away from the foundation of the scriptures. So is he going to take us back to what the scriptures really teach us? Does he believe the Ten Commandments? Does he believe in Moses and the Pentateuch and the teachings that the prophets would teach? And of course, as we learned last time, yes, he did. If you need to listen to that message, you go back and listen to that. In fact, not only did he uphold the scriptures, but he completely debunked everything that the religious leaders were teaching by setting the bar back to where it should be. In their traditions, they lowered the bar. They lowered the standards, which is what we kind of like, right? Our sinfulness likes things to be easy, the easy street. Just make it simple so I can figure out how to live my life accordingly. 
And that makes us feel better on the inside. But Jesus comes along and he removes all that and says, no, I'm going to put the bar, the word of God, back where it's supposed to be, high and holy and lifted up to where you realize that you cannot keep this. It is impossible for you to live the standard righteous life that God is expecting for you to live. You see, that's an uncomfortable kind of sermon, isn't it? That's uncomfortable language. We want to know that we are righteous enough to meet God's standards. That's why you look at your neighbor and you say, I'm a lot better than he or she is. That's why the Pharisee said that to the guy beating his breast that I was just talking about. I'm better than that person. You look at your neighbor today, you look at your coworker, and you say, man, I'm so much better of a person than they are. That's because we set the bar at a certain standard and God sets it up here. And he says, when you set the standard up here where it's supposed to be, there's no way you can meet the righteous requirements. So Jesus came to fulfill everything that God had intended for that righteousness to be and what to, and to look like. And so when the people began to understand that the righteousness of God was up here, they saw themselves without hope and without ability and they became those beggars. That's what Jesus is talking about. Blessed are the poor in spirit. They're starting to see. They're starting to understand. They have no ability to do this. And they cry out for mercy from the Lord. Listen, that's the heart of a true believer. Lord, I can't do this. I can't live the way that you've called me to live. I can't live according to the standards that you're promoting. The bar's way too high. And God is saying, that's exactly what I want you to understand. You can't do it. You're sinful by nature. And I'm holy. There's no way you can meet my demands. And so... At that point, we cry out as spiritual beggars and long for God's righteousness because we know we have none of our own. And that should all sound very familiar to us now. So the problem is, though, that the Word of God is just not often the standard. People just reject it, and too many times the world is the standard. And we're seeing that even in churches today, where the world becomes the model to associate with. And if we could just make the church look more and more like the world, then we'll, be, we'll fit in better. And, and, and we'll be more comfortable. And there won't be tension between us and the world. And we can eliminate a lot of the problems that the world sees in the church. And we'll just bring the standards of God into something that looks very similar to everything that the world will accept. And we've talked about this so many times over. And just look at the illustrations of churches that are compromising. And the Word of God that's being compromised all to look better, to not look so dangerous, to not look so fundamentally different from what the world wants. And, and that's where we've been. All that was in verse 17. And we could cover so much more, and there's so much more that we really could. But let's let's really get to our point here for the for the rest of our time. I want, to, I want you to I want to give you several reasons now why Jesus came, why we can believe that the Scripture is truly the foundation for our lives. Number one, Jesus affirmed Scripture by His own authority, by His own authority. And this comes right out of verse 18. Look at it with me. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Here's what I want you to see. Number one, for truly I, Jesus says, I say to you. That's a very interesting thing, isn't it? 
There was no one who could make that kind of claim in Jesus' day. There's no one who can make that claim today. I would be foolish to stand up here and tell you, I say to you, this is what you need to do. I can't do that. But Jesus, based on his, his own authority, says, I say to you. Now let's just break that down a little bit. The word really is a word of strong, intense affirmation, I. In the King James, your translation may say truly, 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 or verily, verily. It's an affirmation kind of statement. In the Greek, it's the word amen. Does that sound familiar? It's the word amen in English. When we say amen, what we are really saying is so be it. Let it be. It's trustworthy. Let it be sure. Let it be resolute. Let it happen. In other words, when we close our prayers and we say amen, what we're really saying is, Lord, make it happen. Not just make it happen, but let it be, if you understand. And that's what Jesus is saying here, for I, it's kind of like he's saying, I'm the buck stopper. I say to you, this is way, the way it should be. Now, unfortunately, when a person speaks something today, our words don't carry a lot of weight. And you know that. Now, it is legal in the code of law still today, and you can just watch some of the people on television like the Judge Judy's who's off television now, but some of the people on there, you know that a verbal agreement is still binding as long as both people agree to it and uphold it. So there is that sense that there is a verbal agreement today, but our words really don't mean much anymore. That's why we got to go through all this paperwork. Right? You buy something and you got to go through mounds and mounds of paperwork. Well, at one time when somebody said something, their word really meant something. And that should, by the way, always be the case with a believer right we should have what our we should fulfill what our words say and that's just a, a side note <clears throat> but because so many people have been burned by others and you may be sitting here today saying yeah i get that a person's word really doesn't mean much i was thinking as i was putting some of this together of a family that i know that was in the process of building a house and what they did is they went to a christian builder who was well known and over a lot of time, they waited and they waited and they waited and it became a huge burden on them where the builder never showed up, promised many things, took the money, but never really fulfilled the obligations. Last I heard, it was still that way. That builder now has gone out of business. And that's tragic. We go through situations, we hear stories like that, and we say, yeah, I'm not going to believe what somebody tells me. Put their name on the dotted line, right? And then it's hard enough. You've got to go through all kinds of acts of Congress to get it supported. And the people, the point is, the people were skeptical in Jesus' day as well. So for him to say something like that would get their attention, certainly, but the religious leaders had made a lot of statements too. So how do I know that this Jesus is really who he says he is? And so as they watch their hypocrisy, Something that would be said with words would be pretty easy. This guy probably is just another Pharisee or Sadducee. He's just trying to gain some momentum, trying to make some claim on something or to manipulate us, and that was certainly what they did. And there were many people who thought that. In fact, we have one instance, thought that about Jesus. We have one instance of that back from when they knew him in his childhood in Matthew 13. You can just listen to this. When Jesus, that is the subject about him, came to his hometown in his traveling, now he's beginning his ministry, we'll get to this later in Matthew, 
and began teaching in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Isn't this the carpenter's son? I mean, I remember Joseph, and isn't this little Jesus? We remember that kid when he was running around here in diapers. That's what they say in verse 55. Isn't this James, uh, his brother and sister, and Joseph, Simon, Judas, and his sisters, aren't they all with us? I mean, don't we know this kid's family? Where then did this man get all these things? Notice this in verse 57. And they took offense at him. Instead of listening to who Jesus is, they took offense at him. And that's the heart of the, the soul. You see, that's what I'm driving here, driving at. Is that's the way we often react, and that's the way people often act with Jesus. How do I know that this is really him? Well, so the Lord had his work cut out for him, no doubt, but because he knew the truth, right here on the side of the mountain, he makes this incredible statement of authority. He didn't try to just justify, he just simply says, I say to you. Isn't it interesting that the Lord never seeks to prove himself in the scripture? There's nothing about proof from God in the scripture. If you go back to Genesis 1, in the beginning, who? God. He never says, oh, now let me introduce myself. He never gives us a long lecture on why we should believe him. He just says, no, look, I am God. If you read the Pentateuch, those first five books, you're going to hear God speaking through Moses continually. As I said last week, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. Are you getting the picture that God doesn't need to justify himself? He simply says to the crowd there on the hillside, this is an absolute statement about me. I am God. I say to you without qualification, I don't need to do that. I'm full of authority and you need to listen to this. And beloved God is saying the same thing to us. When we open the pages of his word, we need to be listening to the word of the Lord. Because he's saying to us, I am God, this is my word, these are my instructions for you, and you must listen to them. It was a statement of declaration. Listen, it wasn't that he was just another religious leader, but he was God literally come in the flesh. And Matthew's shown us that. Look at the building crescendo here that Matthew has given to us in his writings. Born of a virgin, miraculously. Sought out by wise men who had traveled a great distance to see him. Announced by the angels. Herod gets word of it, tries to kill him. By the way, that's a religious leader in Israel. Proclaimed by John the Baptist, the greatest, Jesus says, of all men as the coming God. Ultimately, God himself would affirm him when he descends on him as a dove or in the form of a dove, saying to the listening crowd around him, this is my son, in verse 17 of chapter 3, in whom I am well pleased. God had greatly announced Jesus to be who he said he was. And in their minds and in their hearts, the people knew Jesus was different, one with great authority. In fact, in chapter 7, as we get to the end of this message, here's what the people are going to say, at least what Matthew tells us, the very end of the sermon, when Jesus had finished these words, he's talking about chapters 5, 6, and 7, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. And listen, here's why. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. So what are we saying in this very first point? What we're saying is that either Jesus was who he said he was or he was just another kook 
out there trying to gain ground for himself. That's point number one. Jesus, by his own authority, affirms the scriptures. Here's another one. Secondly, his word is foundational because it is eternal. It is eternal. Look at verse 18. Jesus says, uh, Matthew says, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now that phrase, until heaven and earth pass away, represents the end of times as we know it. That's what the Lord is saying. Just absorb that for just a minute. Now we've done a lot of studying on Revelation and the other prophets and the Psalms and even in Second Peter over the years where we know what's being foretold about the, ends of time, the end of time coming. And later Jesus is going to affirm the same thing. In, in chapter 24, verse 35, he's going to say, heaven and earth is going to pass away. But listen, my words will not pass away. This is solid. It's firm. Why is Jesus able to make such a claim? How can he do that? There's a couple reasons, but the foundational reason is because, as John will write in chapter 1 of his gospel, he is the Word. Now listen, I don't think we can get our heads around that very well. It's too out there. But we understand that from Scripture, Jesus became flesh as the Word of God. That's way out there for us to try to comprehend. But we take it at face value from what the Lord says. In fact, the psalmist in Psalm 92 verse 8 says, You, O Lord, are on high forever. You are eternal. That word Lord, capital L-O-R-D there, is the word in Hebrew for Yehovah or Jehovah, however you want to pronounce it. It's Yehovah in Hebrew. It's the Old Testament word for God's name. In the New Testament, interestingly, the same word, L-O-R-D, and there's a lowercase L-O-R-D, Adonai, has the same meaning as the Old Testament word for the eternal God. So in the New Testament and in the Old, Jesus is pointing out that I am He. I'm the one. In fact, in chapter 22 of Matthew, let me read this little story for you. While the Pharisees, those wonderful guys, were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Boy, that's a good question, isn't it? Even from the Lord himself. And they said to him, he's the son of David. They couldn't deny that, could they? Because it was written in the genealogical record. They knew that. And he said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, and he's quoting the psalmist, the Lord said to my Lord, excuse me, quoting David in his writings, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And I notice this in verse 46, no one was able to answer him a word. Nor did anyone dare from that day to ask him another question. Talking about the best Jeopardy contestant. I mean, good grief. What Jesus is basically saying here is that David was certainly his earthly father, but only God could have been Lord to King David. And that's what David was saying. Why do you... David understood. Notice Jesus also said in John 10, John writes this in his gospel, I and the Father are one. What do you mean by that? Well, one refers to the unity of oneness in nature and even equality. We exist as two, 
but yet we maintain not only our individuality, but we work and function as one. There's nothing in the world, beloved, like the Trinity. Don't try to describe it. Don't try to come up with some way to make it make sense. You cannot do it. We've come up with all kinds of illustrations and ways to make sense of it in our mind, but God in the Trinity is so far beyond any of our understandings, there's just no way humanly to understand it. It has to be accepted by faith. But we have evidence of the individuality of the Trinity when Jesus comes to the earth because he speaks of the Father and he speaks of himself and he speaks of the Holy Spirit. In John 5.21, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all who honor the Son, even as they honor the Father, he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now listen, those were fighting words. To the Jews, those were fighting words. But Jesus in his authority as God says, this is who I am and this is why you can believe my word. In fact, in his prayer in John 17, he says as he's praying to the Father in the garden there, I do not ask on my behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, and are in me and I in you that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. I mean, that speaks of the eternal unity of the Father and the Son, and he didn't even mention the Holy Spirit there, shared by everyone who believes the truth, that God brings into us the Spirit of God at the moment of our salvation so that we can discern with the spiritual mind, rightly, who God is. And we can accept the truth of what God has said. All right, here's the third point. His word is foundational because every part of God's word is important. Let's go back to what Jesus said here in verse 18. Not until the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. One of man's greatest sins is, again, picking and choosing what he or she wants to believe. We had a deacon here some years ago who thanked me as I finished the book of Romans afterwards and he just said, thank you pastor for preaching all of that book. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, the last church I was in, the pastor said, I'm not going to preach on certain chapters because I don't really believe it. Okay. Augustine, the church father, early on in the life of the church said, if you believe what you like in the Gospels and reject what you don't like, it's not the Gospel you believe, but yourself. It's a great statement. In other words, to only accept God's Word partly as authoritative leaves the entire Bible in question, doesn't it? If we're going to pick and choose what we like and what makes sense to us, it just questions God on everything and who determines what's from God and what's not from God as authoritative if it's not all authoritative? Every bit of it is. And so Jesus is saying here, Scripture is inerrant in its original language. Now what you have in front of you is an English translation of the original languages. So what was inerrant was the original writings and as man has made his marks of uh, copies of Scripture, there have been times where there were certain things that were written down that were not exactly what the original manuscript said. But the good news is we know where all of those are. 
We know every area that those were, and there's only just a few of them, not like your whole Bible is full of them, but there are a few grammatical issues there that were caught by scholars who have said this was not in the original language, so we need to make a footnote right here. And that's why they did that. Okay, So when you see a footnote in your Bible, understand that's a footnote because it's a little bit different in its translation from the original language. Nothing to worry about. We know where those things are and we know what they mean. So Jesus is saying Scripture is an errand in all of its way down to the very letter. And I want to show you this because he brings this up. Every part of it, even the smallest part of even every letter is critical. Now, New American Standard refers to this as we just read the smallest letter of the stroke. The King James Version, if you have that, refers to it as the jot and the tittle. And what is that? Well, if you're not a linguist, you're not going to know what this is. If you don't study languages, you're not going to know what this is. But the jot is the smallest of Greek letters. If you know the Greek alphabet at all, it's the smallest part. And it's used to refer to the least in meaning of anything. That's what the phrase means, jot it down, comes from. The tittle literally means little horn. And it's a scribal mark, if you will. And we'll show you that in just a second. It refers to the smallest marks that help distinguish one letter from the other. And if you've ever, again, looked at languages, you know, especially like the Chinese language, the Japanese language, where there's marks all over the page, right? But every little mark has meaning. Well, the original languages were the exact same way. Let me show you this so that you understand this. All right, here's the Hebrew alphabet. Somebody want to start saying what the letters are? Here's what you're going to do, unless you've already caught this. You're going to start right over here, aren't you? But that's wrong. You've got to start over here. Aleph, Bed, Gimel, Dalet, Hey, Vav, Zion, Chet, Tet, Yod, Kaf, Lamed, Mem, Nun, Sakam, Ayan, Pe, Hesed, Kof, Resh, Shin, Tav. I had to learn a little bit of Hebrew. That's all I know. Here's one we want to focus on. See this thing? It's called the Yod. All right, that's what Jesus is talking about with the Jot. This is Hebrew, but it's the same thing, or comparatively the same in Greek. Okay, let's look at the next screen here. So here's the Yod, Matthew 18, that he's talking about. The tittle, notice this. This is a Hebrew letter. It's that little corner piece right there. It's an extension. So you say, well, how does that work in, in language? Let's look at the, the next screen here. Here's the phrase, I am come to fulfill the law. The tittle is this little horn right there on this Hebrew letter. These things here are vowels. This is the jot. Now Jesus is saying, beloved, not even a little scribal mark will pass away. It's not going to pass away. Every single thing that's written in my word will be fulfilled. Now that's powerful. That is powerful. Jesus himself believed that all of God's word was important. This is so foundational. So if Jesus believes that it's all foundational and critical for our learning, what greater authority is there? If the Lord himself said this, then how can we pick and choose what we say we believe? To do that would say we really don't believe who Christ is, right? And if we don't believe who Christ is, we got bigger issues. 
Can I give you just another thought? If God's word is eternal, and every little trinket of it, every little scribal mark is critical, don't you think that God can take care of you and me? I mean, if God is saying, listen, my word will not pass away. We'll get to this in just a second. Until everything is accomplished, don't you think the Lord can take care of the needs that we have? It's just a thought. Just a thought. Number four, it's foundational because God will complete everything Scripture teaches, and that's what I've just been saying, until all is accomplished. That word all means everything. God is going to perfectly fulfill it. Accomplished in the English word language means becoming or taking place. In other words, everything is becoming. Okay, now follow this. Everything is becoming. Some things have been completed, right? Just shake your head. Everything has been partially completed, such as the judicial law has been fulfilled, the ceremonial law has been fulfilled, and most of the prophecies have been fulfilled. And we say most of the prophecies because we're not at the end yet. And we know that because we know what Revelation has taught us there are still prophecies that still will be fulfilled, right? The point is, is that all of God's divine purposes will be fulfilled if they haven't already been fulfilled. A couple weeks ago, my wife and I were in our education class, not really education class, it's CrossFit, and uh, there was a question of the day, and I think the question was, what's one of your greatest fears? And there was a person who spoke up and said, oh, man, I fear global warming. And I thought to myself, man alive, you had not seen anything yet. I mean, right? We know what's coming. Absolutely, it's going to get warmer. We know what's coming. The prophecies haven't fully been completed yet. And that's why Jesus says, listen, nothing will pass away from my word until it's all completed. Everything that God has created to, to continue to finish, to be finished. All right, number five. It is foundational because Jesus believed it was foundational. He himself believed it was foundational. Let's go through this really quickly. Jesus often refuted people with what? The word of God. Now think, just think how the mind of the Lord himself works. If the word of God is really foundational, who's going to be the one to use it the most? The Lord himself, Right? And there are many passages like this. Let me just read quickly Matthew 22. Jesus would say, you are mistaken not understanding the scriptures. I was going to read all that for you, but we just don't have time. Listen to some other statements Jesus said in Matthew 21. And I just want you to listen. Don't try to write this down. Did you never read the scriptures? Matthew 26, 54. How then will the scriptures be fulfilled? Matthew 26, 56, but all this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures. Mark 14, 49, every day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures. Even after his resurrection in Luke 24, then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, this is the two disciples walking on the street. He explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Luke 24, 32, they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? 
Luke 24, 45. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He even refuted Satan with the word of God. In Matthew 4, we saw this. Jesus was led up into the wilderness by the Spirit. And Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, talking to Satan. Matthew 4.10, and Jesus said to him, go, Satan, for it is written. And Jesus knew that salvation came through the word of God. Luke 16, he said to them, I beg you, Father, this is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And as the rich man's in the pit of hell, he looks up and says, Father, I beg you that you send to him my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. He based his, Jesus based his own authority on the scriptures. Matthew, excuse me, Mark 11, 17. Jesus began to teach them and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? That's just a shotgun blast through some scriptural passages to show that Jesus himself understood the word of God was the authority for life. It is the foundation and he used it himself. And so those are just some quick points this morning on how we can know based on what Jesus is saying that the text of scripture is to be the foundation of our lives. And you say, okay, I got one last question. What does this do for me? Well, it should compel us to live according to the word of the Lord. Number one, we should receive everything that the word of the Lord has said as authoritative. Everything. Everything should be authoritative. In other words, we should live our lives based fully on what God has said. You say, well, what things has God talked about? Well, we don't have time to go through all of it, but just listen to some of the things that are coming up in the sermon. Live obediently under the laws of the land. Love those who are hard to love. Not compromise, but love. Don't judge others unjustly. Don't marry unbelievers. Raise your children to know me. Be the salt and light. We've already talked about that, both outwardly and inwardly. Don't commit adultery. Don't divorce. Love your enemies. And don't worry. And a lot of the things that we're going to see from the sermon. Again, we don't have time to go through all of that. And what do we do in our actions? Well, if we really hold to it as being authoritative, we need to be the proclaimers of it, don't we? We need to be the truth tellers. We need to defend it. I mean, there is a lifetime of attacks on the scriptures. We've already talked about that. We are to be the ones who stand in the gap. We are the ones who carry the word of the Lord into the hearts of others, at least into their minds, so that God can use it to open their hearts. I'll close with this quote from Spurgeon. He said this about the word of the Lord. Whisper it in the ear of the sick, shout it in the corner of the streets, write it on your tablet, send it forth from the press, but everywhere let this be your great motive and warrant. You preach the gospel because the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. You preach the word of the Lord because the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Amen? Beloved, listen, as a church here, we are going to be people to the best of our ability to follow the word of the Lord. If you're struggling with something in life today, 
the issue should always bring you back to God's Word. The very first thought on your mind should be, what does God say? What has He said? How am I to adjust my life to fit God? We don't ask God to fit us. We don't question what God has said, unless it's just for furthering our learning. But we trust Him and believe Him and do what He says. Amen? And when we mess up, we humbly ask for forgiveness. And God is gracious and kind to forgive all who have messed up. And, beloved, we're in a room full, room full of people who have messed up, right? Amen? I mean, we've messed up. We've royally messed up. Some of us far more than others. But yet God is great and God is good. And he's kind and merciful. And if you're struggling with something that you just don't know whether God's going to let you go from it or not, if you'll humble yourself and turn to him for his righteousness, God will forgive you. I can, trust you. I can promise you that. He's a good God who can forgive the hardest of hearts. And we're thankful we have a God like that. Right, let's close in prayer. Father, I want to thank you just personally for a church, a church building full of people who... I've known so personally over these years that truly love you and take your words so seriously. People who study day in and day out. People who show up to hear what you've said. And so, Lord, I just want to thank you for this body of believers. It's such a joy to be a part of this family. There's so many, Lord, across our world that are just not wanting to hear what you say. They're not wanting to believe you. They're not wanting to follow you. And Lord, our hearts go out to them because we know of the blessings that come from following you. We would ask that you would open the darkest of hearts and that you would help those that are struggling to know you and to believe you and what this Bible is all about, that you would give them discernment and give them an openness to accept. Lord, your word teaches us that no man can come to the Father except through you and no man can come unless the Father draws him. And so, Lord, draw souls to yourself. Call the righteous to yourself. And, Lord, may we be the examples of what your word teaches in this world. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.